Some time later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to him in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Genesis 40 begins in a somewhat innocuous way some time later, it says. So for purposes of review, this some time later, it means after Joseph has been abandoned by his brothers and sold into Egyptian slavery, and after his placement in the house of Potiphar, an official in Pharaoh's government, and after Joseph's successes there and his advancement there in Potiphar's house, and after the accusation against him of sexual misconduct by Potiphar's wife that resulted in his imprisonment, and most recently, and most importantly for points of context. This is after Joseph's advancement in the Egyptian jail. Sometime after all of that, this story takes place. 
last week we talked about the prison warden seeing evidence of Yahweh's withness in Joseph's life. And as a result, he placed all of the people in prison into Joseph's care. The actual length of time that Joseph has been in prison is difficult to assess just from the NIVs sometime later. And the Hebrew doesn't really help us much here either. It's more literally translated after these things. All of the things that we've talked about, but again, most, most pointedly after Joseph's uh, success and advancement within the Egyptian jail. In the Genesis narrative, we do, however, receive two somewhat helpful notes on Joseph's age, which might serve to help us plot this story chronologically speaking. When Joseph is introduced, he is said to be a 17-year-old kid who is seemingly, in, in short order, sold into slavery. And we're soon going to learn in the next chapter that two years later, Two years after the story that we're thinking about right now, Joseph is 30 years old. So at this point in the narrative, Joseph is 28, meaning he has been in some form of slavery for the last 11 years of his life. Again, it's impossible to know how many of those years were in the service of Potiphar in his house and how many of those years were spent in prison. But either way, Joseph has been gone from home for a long time time, apart from his dad for a long time, his brothers for a long time. He's been in slavery for a pretty long time. And all of this serves as relevant background for the real story of Genesis 40. Here, Joseph meets two of Pharaoh's officials, a cupbearer and a baker. Most commentators here will stress that these jobs are more important than they might sound to modern ears. Uh, the cupbearer especially is the protector of Pharaoh, or one of the protectors of Pharaoh. Um, it's part of Pharaoh's inner circle due to his perpetual close contact. This was a really important job to make sure that the things that Pharaoh was ingesting wouldn't kill him. There's a lot of trust that goes on there. But for reasons that are untold by the author and reasons that are virtually unimportant for the story's development, both the cupbearer and the baker have angered Pharaoh in some way and have been placed in prison as a result and therefore into Joseph's care. Now, the main goal of what is about to unfold is, is quite simple. It's, it's here, the story is here, to move Joseph toward his eventual audience with Pharaoh in the next chapter. Uh, Walter Brueggemann writes, This chapter serves primarily to pace the narrative and to build suspense toward the confrontation of chapter 41, that confrontation between Pharaoh and Joseph. And the way that it accomplishes this is by recounting a story of the new inmate's dreams and Joseph's surprising interpretation of their dreams. The setting for this story within the story is after they enter prison sometime. So again, this is sometime after Joseph has advanced within the Egyptian prison and sometime after the cupbearer and the baker have been placed into this Egyptian prison. And our story begins because Joseph can see or, or can perceive on the faces of these two inmates uh, their, their downcast disposition. They're frowning, it says. 
So Joseph asks what this is all about, and they tell Joseph it's because they have both had unsettling dreams. But, larger problem, there is no one to solve them. Some English translations might say interpret here, but really uh, there's a bit more to it. There's no one to solve them. This this reading, again, is a bit more forthright than uh, notes of interpretation. Robert Alter notes that in Egyptian culture, there is one conclusive decoding for every dream, and a person who is granted insight can break the code. Further, this science, really, in an Egyptian setting is is taught in schools. So what the cupbearer and the baker are really lamenting is the fact that no one of this skill or training is present with them in prison. They have no one to solve the riddles of their dreams. Now, Joseph's response here is noteworthy. He says, are not solutions from God? Tell me. Maybe God will then tell me what your dreams mean. For Joseph, the Hebrew, it's, it's not science. It's not training. It's, it's not um, decoding. It's God and only God who can determine the dream's meaning. Now, we can use this as a springboard into any sort of modern uh, psychoanalysis of dreams. I'm not going to go there, uh, but just understand that within the culture here, they're looking for the one person who can decode the dreams based on the sciences that they know. And Joseph comes back and says, this is God's deal. Tell me, and maybe because I have an inside track to God, he'll tell me what the dream is and I can report back to you. One uh, Hebrew Bible scholar, his name is Michael V. Fox, who is not to be confused with Michael J. Fox. This is Michael V. Fox, different. Uh, He states that this is a pious disclaimer from Joseph, but not exactly a modest one. What Joseph is saying is, listen, I might have access to this knowledge because I know the God who gives dreams and interprets dreams. So let me try. Instead of all of your learning and scientific approaches, just tell me and then I'll see if the divine can then report back to me. There's a tie here between the story of Joseph and the story of Daniel. Both are in foreign territory and both take on this role of interpreting dreams really according to the cultural context in which they find themselves. There's dreams throughout the book of Genesis, but these dreams function more as visions where God is letting people know what God is up to. Um, it, It doesn't involve a decoding so much. So the cupbearer gives Joseph a chance here, likely because he sees no other viable alternative for him in this moment in this Egyptian jail cell with no scientific uh, approaches available for dream interpretation. He just takes a chance on this Hebrew slave. And he says to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and I squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in his hand. There's all these things that are happening very, very quickly about the growth of grapes and uh, 
the fermentation you can infer about the grape juice that is being squeezed into the cup here. This is not a commentary on, well, you see, in the Bible, they drank grape juice. That's not really what's happening here. Um, all of these things are happening very, very quickly. And immediately, Joseph hears the dream and he gets it. Interestingly enough, there's no prayer here uh, in this story. Joseph doesn't say, thanks for telling me, let me say this prayer, see if I can intuit anything from God, and then I'll report back to you. It's just like he hears the dream, and then immediately he has, he has the decoding of, of the dream, and he responds. He says, this is what it means, or maybe better, this is the dream's solution. The three branches are three days, and within three days, catch this, Pharaoh will lift up your head. This is an important phrase. And actually, I don't think uh, this phrase recurs in English Bible translations. You might want to check me on that. But it says, within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cup bearer. Three days and, and you'll be back in business. Three days and this will all be over. Three days and Pharaoh will lift up your head. And then Joseph continues, and this is where it gets really strange. He says, but remember me when all goes well with you and show kindness. Literally uh, in Hebrew, the, the translation there would be do Chesed. We talk a lot about chesed, this idea of faithful acts of commitment, or uh, English Bibles would translate it as steadfast love. Really, it's more acts of commitment that are happening here. Show me an act of commitment and faithfulness. Show me uh, by your chesed that you are remembering me. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of here. Commentators note that this is just dripping with pathos from Joseph in, in this phrase here, in this request, in this plea. He's pleading with the cupbearer. He says, I was forcibly carried off. You could say another way of thinking about this is I was stolen. Some interpreters would even say I was, I was kidnapped. I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon, in this pit. I don't have the Hebrew in front of me, but I'm, I'm wondering if there's some, some sort of uh, resonances here with the cistern that Joseph was in formerly, and now he's in this, this dungeon as well, if there's like a tie there. I, I don't know. I don't have that in front of me. But nothing, uh, Joseph says, is, is working out in life. He's been sold into slavery. He has faced wrongful accusations. Uh, and because of that, he's in prison. And, and note, instead of asking God for help, which maybe we can assume he is doing or has done, but it's not in the story. That's an assumption that we're making. He's now relying on the cupbearer, on an Egyptian for help. So strange. I, I want that detail to sit with you. We're going to come back to it, but just hang on to it. So Joseph interprets the dream. He solves the dream, and it's favorable. The baker now seeing all of this happen right in front of him, he responds uh, and says, well, hey, um, Joseph, th this looked really good for my friend here. Maybe you can interpret my dream as well. But his dream is not the same. He might be just a bit overeager because clearly his dream is, is ominous. Birds are eating bread out of a basket on his, his head. 
but maybe, maybe he thinks that there's a favorable way to spin this. And maybe Joseph can tell me too that, that God will get, get me out of here, that Pharaoh will get me out of here. Maybe he will also be reinstated in the same way. So Joseph says, three days hence, I'm reading from Robert Alter's translation, three days hence, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Again, this is the bit that I think is missing from some English Bible translations. Um, but here, like, it's, it's the same sort of uh, cadence that the cupbearer has heard. And it's worked out great for the cupbearer. So the baker, you can almost just sense it thinking like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Yes, absolutely. This is a good sign. It sounds good. Pharaoh is going to lift up my head just like the cupbearer. I'm going to be back in business. Great. But that's not where it goes. Joseph says, Pharaoh will lift up your head from upon you. It's almost like a a decapitation. And then Pharaoh will impale you on a pole and birds will eat your flesh from upon you. I have here in my notes, um, in an Egyptian context, this is really bad news, (laughs) which fair, fair uh, point. This is terrible news in any context, okay? Being impaled on a stake and being decapitated and having birds eat your flesh, that's not a good day. But the point of this, in an Egyptian context, it's saying that the punishment that you will receive is going to go beyond the grave. It's not just how you die, it's going even beyond the grave. John Golden Gay writes, it means that there will not be enough of the victim to bury because the birds have eaten his carcass. And this victim will not be able to rest with his ancestors in the family tomb. Now, though, though it's a different cultural context, this idea might inform the rationale in some of the Old Testament legislation. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, it says if someone is guilty of a capital offense and they're put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land of the Lord your God, um, that God is is giving to you as an inheritance in this way by leaving dead bodies on poles impaled uh, overnight. Don't do that. Nahum Sarna is a Jewish commentator, and he says, well, this is all particularly loathsome for the baker, which let's file that in understatements of the century, okay? Um, But the author in Genesis doesn't dwell on this. Uh, The author doesn't give us a a sneak peek into the inner workings of the baker or Joseph. That's not part of the story. In fact, it just kind of moves ahead uh, to to what's next. Again, this whole story is not meant to psychoanalyze Joseph or any of the characters. It's just meant to move us along to Joseph's eventual audience before Pharaoh um, and his eventual success in Egyptian leadership. That's the point. But in three days... Everything that Joseph has predicted, it comes to pass. The cupbearer is reinstated. The baker is impaled on a pole and birds eat his flesh. Now, with all of this in mind, that this is a weird, like, 
tie to application here, but I'd really like for us to focus just on Joseph's plea to the cupbearer, and I think actually we can make some relevant ties for us here. Joseph says to the cupbearer after his favorable interpretation, his favorable solution of the dream, he says, remember me, show kindness to me, do chesed to me, demonstrate an act of commitment to me, tell Pharaoh about me, get me out of here, I shouldn't be here on a number of levels. First, I was kidnapped, I was taken from my family, I'm innocent of all of the accusations against me, there was no sexual misconduct, and this, this sort of bad on top of bad has been happening in my life for the last 11 years, get me out of here, remember me when you get out. Again, think about all of this. Joseph has been very quick in this story to to highlight or to emphasize or to point to God as the interpreter of dreams. If you want to get real nerdy here for a second, Walter Brueggemann notes that the role of these dreams in, in this story is to demonstrate that they are theonomous, meaning that they have to do with God and God's rule. They are also charismatic, meaning they are news, they are, they are preaching, they are communications about a new situation that cannot be derived from or predicted from the present situation. It's something completely new that God is doing. And these dreams, they're eschatological, meaning they speak of God's coming resolution of human issues. All of these these dreams, they're just pointing to God and Joseph is interpreting them. Joseph's inclusion of God in this role of interpreter it demonstrates that Joseph is connected to God, is trusting in God, is committed to God, maybe. I, I don't think that's a real reading in, but we haven't gotten a lot of the innermost thoughts of, of Joseph in this passage. And yet, despite any involvement from God, despite any of God's witness in Joseph's life, Joseph is found pleading with the cupbearer of the king in his situation of need. It's so strange. There's no lament psalm. There's no heartfelt prayer. It's Joseph just in a speech dripping with pathos saying, remember me. Do chesed for me. And it's sort of identifiable in that way. Again, Walter Brueggemann writes, We are shown the personal struggle of a man who is still in prison. And for all of his ability to amaze others, he himself is still in great need. And and he must depend upon charity, maybe more than that, the chesed of a stranger, of a foreigner, of someone who does not know the God of Joseph. Remember me, he says. And yet, upon his release and upon his reinstatement, the cupbearer, we learn, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Now, I want to be clear here because what I'm about to say is probably not the best way to approach this story. It's a bit individualistic. It's a bit me or us-centric. It definitely takes us away from the story of Joseph and the role of God in his life and the role of God in this story. But I just can't shake this, this reading, this, this application, I guess you could call it. 
The story depicts a, a man in an admittedly difficult position, a man who is begging for the help of someone to right the wrongs in his life, but this person forgets him. Joseph, in other words, is a man who is suffering, a man who has been wronged over and over and over, a man who has been on the receiving end of, of hurts countless hurts, a man who needs help and who does not receive it. Two things for us to consider. One, what would this do to your faith? What would these experiences lead you to believe about God's withness with you? In my work as a minister, one of the most common conversations that I have with congregants and people just on the fringes of Christianity or religion is this idea that something has happened in their life and they can no longer trust God. God has abandoned them, God has left them, and they find themselves without any form, tangible form of God's withness in their life. And I don't blame them for that. Even if I think that what we might learn from this story is that God is with us in the midst of our lowest moments. Nothing in this story that, of the things that have happened to Joseph have been planned or orchestrated. Yet God is in the midst of the, the difficulty and the suffering with Joseph. And for many of us, that is difficult to accept, or maybe better, difficult to believe and trust that God cares at all about what we go through. What would these events, what have similar events in our lives done to our belief and to our faith? The second thing I think that's worth pondering is very different than the first. What are you or what are we doing for those in difficult positions who have been wronged, who have been on the receiving ends of countless hurts, maybe societal or maybe systemic or maybe religious or maybe financial or relational in nature. We have all of these different ways in which people are hurt all around us. What are we doing for those who find themselves in these positions, these people who need help? In this story, God is with Joseph, yet the story, it seems to progress by by and through the faithfulness of Joseph and the chesed, or lack thereof, of the cupbearer and the warden and Potiphar and Joseph's brothers. These, these people are advancing this story. They're agents within the story, moving it along. And when we see things from that vantage point, Joseph begging and pleading the cupbearer to do something for him and the cupbearer forgetting, what are we doing for those in our lives and in adjacent positions to our lives who we know need help, who we know have been wronged? 
are we also forgetting? In this story, it's really easy to, to sympathize with the cupbearer because he's, he's reinstated and he's, he's brought back to power, so to speak, and, and everything in his life kind of goes back to normal. So he doesn't think about the person that he met in prison who kind of put him on this path. And maybe even in his mind, he thought, well, you know, it was going to happen anyway with or without Joseph telling me this. So, so who cares? And it just, it didn't really seem to bother him. And in the same way, when things are going well for us, we might not be preoccupied with those around us who are hurting or who need, who need help in any sort of way. So what are we doing? And another question that, that arises is, who do we know who might need something? Who do we know who might be waiting for us and for our acts of faithfulness and commitment, for our chesed? As Christians, like we, we talk often about how Jesus has transformed our lives, and because of the greatness of, of Jesus, we will reflect that to the world because we have been forgiven much or because we have experienced love or because we have whatever through Jesus. We want to give that to other people. Who's waiting for that? Who's waiting for the receipts, so to speak? Who's waiting for us and for our Chesed. This story, again, I'm not convinced that this is the best way to approach it, but these, these considerations are poignant and demanding, and we would do well to consider how we have processed the wrongs that we have experienced in our life and what that does to our faith and also how we are or are not showing chesed, showing faithfulness, showing commitment and love to those around us who are waiting for us to respond. Mm-hmm.